Turn with me to Romans chapter 2 as we're going to be looking at the first 16 verses this morning of Romans chapter 2. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask, ask for His help with it. Let's pray. Father, as we come to Your Word this morning, we pray that You would change us by it. We read the words of the Catechism this morning that our natural tendency is to hate You and to hate our neighbor. So Lord, as we open Your Word, we pray that You would sanctify us with Your truth, Your Word, is truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I prepared for this message this week, I kept coming back to um, a story or a book that's been written and this author, Mark Twain, you guys have heard of Mark Twain, I'm sure. And he says, nothing's, his, you know, he has all these famous kind of pithy quotes and one of his pithy quotes is, nothing so needs reforming as other people's habits. He was a vocal critic of all religions, but in particular Christianity, and one of his main criticisms of Christianity was the hypocrisy of Christians. who pretend to hold to God's law, but only play lip service to it. And he wrote a book. Basically, that's kind of the outline of that book. It's called Huckleberry Finn. Highly recommended uh, that book. And he uses a character in the book named Miss Watson to show this hypocrisy. She regularly calls Huck to change his bad behavior. To He wants to go to the good place. Yet she owns a slave named Jim, and she treats Jim cruelly. While Twain wasn't a believer, and we aren't held accountable at all to his thoughts on our faith or anything at all for that matter, I think that listening to the lost world sometimes can provide a bit of a mirror into our lives. On our text today, the Apostle Paul gives us a similar mirror, and it deals with this idea of hypocrisy concerning God's law and how we ought to live. And as we move into the later parts of this book, we're going to deal specifically with Christian imperatives concerning our thoughts and our behavior and how we treat one another. But in the passage today, we're going to be looking at how we see ourselves overall and how we are measured against the perfect law of God. While the unbeliever is primarily in view in our passage today, it is important for us, I think, to regularly consider our own lives and our work in this life. And we'll learn from God's Word that it's easy to presume upon the kindness of God. We easily forget that He's an all-knowing and ever He demands a standard that requires active participation in our parts. As we move through this text today, we'll consider the idea that God judges all according to their works and how how this calls us to a higher standard. Ultimately, how Christ has kept that standard for us, securing our salvation. So we'll consider three main ideas from the text. First, inescapable judgment. Second, universal accountability. And then lastly, 
the divine standard. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Romans 2, 1 through 16. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judges those who practice such things, and yet you yourself do them, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also for the Greek. But the glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also for the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel... God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. So a little bit of context here. Just remember where we're at in the overall idea of this book of Romans. We dealt with the important idea from Romans 1 that God has revealed Himself in such a way as to leave man without excuse. Excuse for what? Their suppression of that truth. That and their ungodliness and unrighteousness that stem from the suppression of that truth. God is essentially saying there's no excuse for man to behave the way that he does or to act as if he is his own God. God has made himself known, not the mere fact of his existence, which is enough, but also his divine attributes like holiness and justice. And you could just keep going on and on. While these are important things, man has suppressed these things and chooses to live in the opposite way. And look again at verse 32 of Romans 1, which is kind of like the turning point of our text today. Verse 32, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We have this kind of summary there concerning how unbelieving man acts. They know that sin leads to death, yet they sin anyway. Not only do they sin, but they celebrate it. They, 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 they celebrate those who do it, those who practice it. When we read words like this, it's easy for us to stand on the outside. 
and to kind of point fingers. Like, look at this. Like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I see, right? In the world, we see this thing. Like Twain said, the habits of others need reforming, not my own. This verse seems to validate that bit of hypocrisy for us. And as we move into chapter 2, we quickly see that there's an answer for it. While I I don't condone Twain's criticisms at all of our faith, nor do I condone many of the actions of the main character, Huck Finn, in that book at all, you can easily see their frustrations with hypocrisy. As we move through the first part of this book, there may be times we want to kind of swell our chests and wonder why everyone isn't just like us. But the opposite temptation then is to toss ourselves back in with the unbeliever which is also wrong. So as we study this chapter today, it's important for us to see our own hypocrisy while at the same time remembering that we rest upon the righteousness of Christ, not our own. And these first few verses really help us to be grounded in that. Let's look again there at verse 1 as we get to the first point, inescapable judgment. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It didn't take long for him to get that out of the way. There's nowhere to run from this verse. Again, as we come to the end of chapter 1 there in verse 32, this idea that there's people celebrating sin. that They know the thing they ought to do and they're doing it anyway. We want to stand over the cliff as we watch other people fall. But we quickly realize here in chapter 2, verse 1, that we are very close to falling in ourselves. In fact, if we were left to our own device, we would be falling along with them. We love to compare. We love to look at others and talk about how great we are. And it can sometimes even sound pious. It even kind of sounds like it's a good thing to say, like the Pharisee who stood over the tax collector. Thank God I'm not like this one here. It's always the other person that needs reformed, not me. The apostle clears that up really quick as he continues. Verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. It's easy to forget that Christ has paid this price for us, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, that Christ became sin as if He had practiced such things so that we could have forgiveness. The unbeliever is at least honest in their celebration of sin, whereas for the believer, we forget and we celebrate sin while actively leaning on the kindness of God. And that is exactly the idea that he deals with next as we look at verses 3 and 4. Do you suppose, O man... You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness was meant to lead you to repentance? What we're going to see as we move down this text, particularly as we move into next week, that Paul is addressing his Jewish audience. In particular, as he asked them these questions about presuming upon the kindness of God because they are Jews. 
Yet for the church today, the message is really no different. Because we many times do the same thing, particularly as we read Romans 1, which we like to do when it comes to sin and motivations of sin in the world. And rightly so, in my mind, there's no better place to, in the Scriptures to understand why people sin. The motivation of sin, particularly in the unbelieving heart. Yet we want to remove ourselves too far from it to the point that we begin to think that the difference between ourselves and the unbeliever is actually us. And we presume upon the kindness of God, which is to say that we look down on the kindness of God, that we take it for granted, then we act however we want to act, passing judgment on others for their immorality while acting out in our own immorality. Rather than being taken for granted, the kindness of God is there to lead us to repent. Means is that God has kind of given us a long rope, so to speak, to learn how we ought to serve Him, to learn how we ought to love others. And along the way, we will sin, of course, but He is kind, He is compassionate, He is quick to forgive, all these things that the New Testament says about Him. And so, how could we ever take that for granted? But we do. God will just forgive me because, you know, that's what He does. So I'm going to act however I want to act. We're given a warning here for that kind of behavior. It shows a hardness of heart and it stores up wrath against us for when God would so choose to reveal it. One who continually presumes upon the kindness of God rather than going to Him in repentance shows themselves to be an unbeliever and brings wrath and brings the wrath of God on themselves. And this is an important warning for the church. It's why we teach one another. It's why we teach our families. It's why we actively shepherd the flock of God. We are called to a high standard and to presume upon the kindness of God by neglecting that standard will result in Him saying one day, like we read in Matthew 7, away from me. I never knew you. We are all held accountable for our works. In this next section, we'll see that that differentiates for the believer. That brings us to the second point, universal accountability. Look with me at verses 6 through 8. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey un- unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. This is reminiscent of another passage. As I consider this passage, it made me think of Rome, or Matthew 25 where Jesus separates at the last day. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. It's kind of a picture of those who served Him on one side, served them by their deeds on one side, and those who served themselves... On the other side, to be clear before we start talking about this, I want to be careful and make sure that we understand as we start talking about God's judgment of us that there isn't a shift of Paul's uh, theology here at all. We aren't going to a works-based model of salvation all of a sudden. Right? We're not, that's not what you see happening here. We're still looking at this through the lens of 116 or chapter 1 verse 16, which says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel, 
is the power of God for salvation, not our own works. Salvation is not dependent upon our works. That said, while it's not dependent upon our works, we will all be judged according to our works. You see that in Matthew 25. You see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where we read about our heavenly reward and how each of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so if you look again at verse 7, those who seek out things that will last will have their reward, glory and honor and immortality, seeking out things that persevere through the corruption of this world and last through to the next life. The way that we love God, the way that we love others, as we read in the in the catechism this morning, that these are the great commandments, the fact that we can be a part of this kingdom coming to earth. All these are examples of the kinds of acts by patience and well-doing that will give us eternal life. And again, not that we're earning our reward, we're not earning Christ in any way, but that we have a chance to live as we ought to live on this earth and we will be judged according to those works. But what about those who are self-seeking? As we see there moving on in verse 8. Wrath and fury is what they have. This is talking about the unbeliever for sure. Ultimately, their ultimate reward for eternal, for this sort of behavior is the eternal wrath and the eternal fury of God. But what about the believer? then, who chooses to be self-seeking, not obeying the truth by obeying unrighteousness. We all know the answer to this, right? We all know and understand this as we see this in the lives of people that we know and love or even see it in our own lives, hopefully. Would we presume upon the kindness of God? Would we just take it for granted that His in His wonderful kindness for us well, if so, He will not let this go unnoticed. But we will reap what we sow on this earth. And to some degree, even the next. I don't really understand the fullness of this teaching in the Scriptures as a whole. This idea of rewards in, in the heavenly places as we get the idea that heaven is, has rewards. And those rewards are not equal. That while we all have the same Christ, we may not all have the same experience in heaven. And while I think the thrust of this passage is concerning this life, especially for believers, it is important for us to consider the life to come. Our motivation for serving God shouldn't be the promise of reward, though. Rather, it should be the love that we have for Him. And you can see that in verse 9. The one who chooses a self-seeking life are also choosing one of tribulation and distress. And notice there the call back to 116, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, reminding us that the gospel is the power of salvation and any other self-seeking gospel is the power of nothing. It cannot save, it cannot sustain. Instead, it brings tribulation and distress. God brings glory and honor to those who do good tribulation and distress to those who are self-seeking. And in verse 11 we read that he does not there's no partiality in God in the context of course this is drawing from this idea of the Jew and the Greek 
But I think it's important for us to see this in our own lives. God is not partial to anyone because of who they are, the office they hold, their particular vocation in life, whether it be in ministry or not, male, female, Jew, Greek, free, slave. There is no distinction by which one person can receive bias over another person. He who does good receives the reward. Reward. Of course, in Christ, we have that reward in full. The Gospel shows no partiality. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All who call, there is no degree of salvation in that regard. And we need that reminder here because it's really easy to read a passage like this and come away thinking that we perhaps do need to earn a little something for ourselves. And that's not the truth. In fact, it's our natural bent. Why? Because we have the law of God written on our hearts as we're getting ready to see again. The law of God is a teacher, and it first teaches us the difference between good and evil and what we ought to do to satisfy God. This is why the unbeliever knows better. When we read there in verse 32 of chapter 1, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. How do they know that? Because they have the law written on their hearts. That brings us to the final point. The divine standard. Look with me again at verses 12 through 13. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. The point is being made here that it's not simply enough to hear the law and to know it. Rather, we must be doers of the law. Not to save ourselves, but to show ourselves as saved. How is the life of Jesus characterized on this earth? Consider the life of Jesus. He was righteous. He did the law perfectly. He followed it. He was a doer of the law. If we are in Christ then how should we be concerning the law? We too, in Christ, should be doers of the law. As we move into this book, as we get into chapters 5 and 6 and 7 in particular, we're going to see that idea come to the forefront. And he goes on to explain that in verses 14 through 16. Let's, Let's look at that together. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse him in them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus." I mean, when I, every time I read this, I think of like one of my kids as a toddler. You know, as you say, all right, don't do that. I specifically remember, like, don't don't touch the outlet on the wall, right? And what do they do? They look at you out of the side of their face, and their hand is slowly moving towards the wall, right? They know the thing that they ought to do. It's been plainly spoken to them. Even as a toddler, they understand that basic principle. I was just told not to do something, and now what do I want to do in every part of my being? I want to do the thing the opposite of what I've been told to do. 
They know the good that they ought to do, though they are barely able to talk. Why is this the truth? Because the law of God, this simple law of honor your father and mother, is written on their hearts. They know it. It's written on the hearts of every person. God does not have to explain the law to uh, to anyone in order for them to be accountable to it. We talked about this some last week. The ignorance of the law is no excuse. And that's just it. There is no ignorance of the law. Everyone knows. There are no secrets that someone can accidentally not follow. Right? Because we all have this law written on our hearts. It's why we are still accountable to this divine standard. We all know the good we ought to do. And when we don't do it, that's called sin. And sin deserves eternal punishment. This is what verse 16 says, according to the Gospel. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation. But it is also the truth that those who die outside of the righteousness of Christ will die in their sin, and there's none to deliver. God shows no partiality. The one who does right will have eternal life. The one that doesn't will have eternal condemnation. There is no middle ground. When it comes to our ultimate destination, there is no grade. It's either 100 or zero. The only way to have a 100 is to have Christ. In Christ, we are constantly working to make our calling and election sure, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But salvation is the power of God, not my power, not your power. I will be judged according to my good works one day. You will too. But the fact that Jesus is preparing a place for us and that we have been saved from the foundation of the earth This is based upon His righteousness alone. And for the unbeliever here this morning, there is nothing more important for you to hear while you are on this earth. There is a God. You are not Him. And He has written the law on your heart. And none of this is news to you, in fact. How do I know that? The Bible's told me that none of this is news to you. You know the good that you ought to be doing, and up to this point you have suppressed that truth. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. There is nothing that you can do to save yourself. Rather than continuing to try, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved today. For the believer, I hope this message has also been clear to you. There's still nothing that you can do to earn your salvation there's nothing that you can do to like keep your spot, so to speak. You're not going to get a better version of Jesus at all. Yet, we are still judged according to our works. And there is no pretending with God. You can fool lots of people, but God sees the heart. He knows the truth. He knit us together in our inmost being as we read from Psalm 139 this morning. And with any self-seeking disobedience, There is only tribulation and distress. And we know this full well as we look at our lives. Our sins don't make our lives easier or better. It's only the opposite. Even those that haven't caught up to us yet, they tear at us because it is not who we are. Rather than continuing to presume upon the kindness of God, 
allow His kindness to lead you to repentance. His kindness is demonstrated in each believer here in the fact that you haven't been consumed yet this morning. Call out to God in repentance and continue a life of obedience and gratitude to Him. Love God and love others just as He has called you to do. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we know these words, even as You have instructed us so clearly, You have eliminated everything down to just two simple commands that we ought to love You and we ought to love one another. Even in that simplicity, we find complexity. We find ourselves in tribulation and distress because we can't even do the simple things. Lord, forgive our bitterness. Forgive our hatred. Forgive these things that would separate us from You were it not for You. Lord, we are thankful for Your kindness, for Your continued mercy in our lives, for Your forgiveness, for Your steadfast love that You have for Your covenant people. And Lord, we pray that Your kindness this morning would lead us to repentance. We pray this in Your holy name. Amen.